This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And we tell you all kinds of stories from all walks of life as it relates to business and the arts, big, big names in history. But we love bringing you the small stories, too, because in our mind, they're all important. They're all relevant. And sometimes the small ones speak to us better than the big ones do. We bring you this show, by the way, from a small town in Mississippi called Oxford, home of Ole Miss. And while we talk to people of all kinds from all over this great country, sometimes we like to bring you stories from people in our neck of the woods, our little town. And so we bring you the story of Ron Lakey, the owner of Ron's Music Center, a small but thriving music store right here in Oxford. This is Pure Americana. I'm Ron Lakey. Uh, my home is Oxford, Mississippi. My hometown is Ashland, Mississippi. Ashland was uh, when I was growing up. I went to school there for an extended education. I went to high school about for uh, 14 years, so uh, I got a lot of education in Ashland. And uh, looking back, uh, we had the greatest teachers. We had a great school. Um, we we turned out some really smart people there. Um, I found out in testing in later years that uh, that they even taught me a lot. My mom and dad uh, both worked very hard um, all of my life and. Un- until I got to be 17 or 18 years old. And uh, after that, they still did work hard, but they went from uh, working for the public, working for other people, to having their own uh, grocery business for their normal standard of living. They had they worked themselves right on up. The community loved them. They were just great parents to me. I'm sure I ran them crazy. I have a brother and a sister. Because my granddad had been uh, a former sheriff of that county, uh, I had a lot of access to stuff that he had taken off of people during his four years of service. He just had an old cigar box full of things like straight razors and knuckles you know lead knuckles and aluminum knuckles and that sort of thing and uh and i've always been a you know i used to trade anything in school you know and uh we'd trade pocket knives and come up with things like cigarette lighters and all that stuff and Grandpa had just kind of turned all that stuff over to me, and uh, and I was trading it off, and I got caught trading a set of knuckles off. <laughs> One of mine was made out of uh, Babbitt lead, which it was for lead. It was uh, old lead knuckles, you know. It They weren't soft, and they were heavy. And the other one was really nice cast aluminum, and uh, looked it looked neat. 
I just traded, either sold them, traded for another knife or something like that. But uh, the janitor there told on me and the guy that was getting them. Boy, in no time, our principal was on the horn and, and he called Ron Lakey and Tommy Curtis to the office. And, and uh, it was real serious, and he looked serious. And uh, he decided he needed that that wasn't enough. He needed to take me home to show my dad and my granddad what kind of sins I was committing at school. <laughs> and, and both of them already knew about that. Mr. White took those knuckles and went through a dramatic spill with Dad and Grandpa, and he gave those to them and took me back to school. That night at supper, I thought I was really in trouble, you know. But after supper and everybody else had cleared the table, Dad reached in his pocket and he said, Here. Don't get in trouble with them things. <laughs> and he gave, you know, he gave him, gave them back to him. He said, "Just don't get in trouble with them." So okay, but you know, we didn't fight at school. We didn't fight after school. I mean, it was everybody got along, and uh, school was fun. It was, it was cool to have a car. There probably weren't, there probably were not twelve students that came to work to school in a car. I quit school because I didn't have a car, and I went out and got a factory job, earned enough to buy a cheap car. My uncle saw that I needed a car, and he had a cool little Austin Healy Sprite, and he sold it to me for $500. And That was a lot of money then, but it was a wonderful buy and a wonderful opportunity. And So for my last year in high school, I had an Austin Healy Sprite, so we were... It was neat to have a car, and, and still there were 12 cars in school. And you've been listening to Ron Lakey, and his story is, well, it's a story from right here in our little town of Oxford, and we'd love to hear your stories, too. And as you can tell, we just stay out of the way, and we ask a few open questions, but you don't hear us in these stories. We want to hear from Ron and his life. Send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and it doesn't have to be yours if it's someone in town you think's interesting. Well, we'll tell their stories for you. Again, send the stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Contact us. Our producers will be in touch. We'll send some recording gear your way with a little sheet with some basic questions. And the rest is, well, easy. Again, Ron Lakey's story here on Our American Stories, the owner of Ron's Music Center in our beautiful and small and not perfect town, but good town of Oxford, Mississippi. More after these messages.
And we return to Our American Stories and the story of Ron Lakey, the owner of Ron's Music Center right here in Oxford, Mississippi. Let's continue with Ron's story. A buddy of mine and I joined the Navy in 1966 and went to boot camp in California, San Diego. Went aboard a ship from the West Coast, the USS Galveston. It was a guided missile light cruiser. After we got on it, went to the East Coast, went to the Mediterranean uh, to be the flagship for the Admiral in the Mediterranean in 67. We went down through the Panama Canal and came out on the other side, went to Newport, Rhode Island, and then through really bad hurricane weather as we went around Cape Hatteras. We went from the U.S., Palma, Mallorca was our first stop. And then we were in several cities in that part of the world over there. Of course, we were in Naples, Italy, and uh, we were in Sicily, a couple of towns in France, and we went to Barcelona, Spain, uh, and a lot of that. But at that time, the interesting thing about that time was in 67 was uh, when the Israeli were having problems, you know. They had neighboring countries that were trying to be at war with them as they are today. In the middle of that, there was a ship, our ship, that the Israeli attacked. They uh, they hit it with torpedo boats and uh, put two or three torpedoes in it and killed 32 men on board. It was a mistake. That ship was moved to Valletta, Malta, and my friend and I were able to go to that ship and go on board that ship and and see the reality of that. And, uh, you know, when you're 20 years old, that was a big impression. And uh, the ship was pretty pretty messed up and uh, uh, we had to smell human flesh all the time that we were on that ship and it was that was pretty tough and just pretty memorable and in 1968 I got orders to go to Vietnam uh, we trained in California to teach us the reality of what we would be into then 40 miles south of Saigon there was an attachment there called the Mobile Riverine Force. And uh, I was in that Mobile Riverine Force on a boat, pretty well armored boat. Each boat had a about a seven-man crew, a boat captain, which would be an enlisted man, and then the driver, or coxswain, which was me. It was a skeleton crew, but we were pretty heavily armed. My boat carried 1,100 gallons of gasoline bladder in the well deck. And, you know, the rivers over there are just used like, you know, there's rivers that qualify as expressway and there's rivers that qualify as a dirt road, you know. And uh, we had to travel through those areas. You could real easily be in a firefight. My boat was really blessed. There would be convoys that would go through these areas, 
and get hit. And then our turn, they would forewarn us and give us all the intel. And we'd go through and come out on the other side clean. And uh, it was just like trouble till we went through. And then after we went through, trouble <laughs> for everybody else. But it was a really good experience. I wouldn't take anything for having gone over there. I know the good things that we did over there. I know the humane things that we did over there. I went to work as a purchasing agent for a mobile home factory. I went to work in Memphis in 73 and sold cars. Went to New Orleans, sold cars. Went back to Memphis, sold cars. And then in 1975, I had a very serious wreck which rendered me legally blind. I don't have any sight in my left eye. I've got, you've heard about the guy that's blind in one eye and can't see out of the other. Well, that's me. I had worked all my life and I enjoyed working. And uh, it slowed me down uh, a lot. It put me in a position that I had never been in before. You know, because of the severity of the accident, I wound up spending 45 days in the hospital and had brain surgery because the accident busted my brain. But once they relieved everything, uh, relieved the pressure, everything fell back in place and healed. It was nothing to sneeze at. It, it took me a year till I had strength like I should because I had gone from like 205 pounds, uh, but I lost down to about 140 pounds. And so had a lot of strength to rebuild and uh, to adapt to my blindness. I didn't want to sit around all my life. And uh, so there was the choice. You either figure out what you're going to do and, or you just sit around and don't do anything. And I couldn't do that. I got out of the hospital in January 76. And uh, it took me from there till 78 to figure out what was I going to do. I did go to the Center for the Blind in Jackson, Mississippi, which was, a, which was a great facility, great people. Uh, I learned more about mobility. My counselor wanted them to see me because... Uh, if they wanted to invest in me, they want, he wanted them to know what they were looking at. And so I spent about 12 weeks down there. Uh, it was a great help for me. And uh, out of frustration for finding a set of strings in Holly Springs one weekend, next time I told him, I said, I guess if I could do anything I wanted to do, I'd open a music store. And... He uh, he said, I know a little about that. And so we kind of pursued that. Got a little SBA loan. Vocational rehab uh, gave me a $5,000 grant, just a gift. So I bought that old store out. It had about a $5,000 inventory. $5,021 is a fact. And... Uh, I had five thousand, so I went. <laughs> I went into business, twenty-one dollars in the hole. So, 
maybe I've dug out by now. I've been doing this this year in May will have been 40 years. And you're listening to Ron Lakey, and if you can, well, if you can see what we're up to, it's simple. We should be listening to each other more. And right in your own community, there are people with unbelievable stories. You don't have to go to the movies, folks. Uh, Our real lives are, well, maybe more interesting than anything we can see on the screen. I mean, imagine this this guy who you probably walk in and out of a music store, you know people like this in 1968. There he is in Vietnam. And as he put it, his boat was just blessed. Others ran into trouble. His would get through unscathed, and then others would run into trouble. But he said some good came of it. And that is an American voice. You're hearing 45 days in a hospital after a car wreck, brain surgery, all kinds of troubles, healing, losing weight. And what does he want to do? Well, he doesn't want to sit around and complain. He wants to have a life. I didn't want to sit around all my life. I couldn't do that, Ron Lakey said. It took a few years to figure out what I wanted to do. $5,000 loan, $5,000 of inventory in this little music store, and he starts his own business, 21 bucks in the hole, but filled with optimism and filled with hope for his own future. Ron Lakey's story here on Our American Stories And again, we really were looking for you to to share your stories with us and send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And get in conversations with your neighbors. And whatever you do, don't talk about politics because there's so many things that unite us. And, well, that just doesn't happen to do it. And we try to avoid all that stuff here on this show. Keep things positive. Keep things, well, on an even tone. Talk to a neighbor, send a neighbor's story our way to OurAmericanNetwork.org. When we come back, we'll finish up with Ron Lakey's story from our beautiful but not perfect town here just about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee, in Oxford, Mississippi, home of Ole Miss and home of Our American Stories. Turn to the story of Ron Lakey, owner of Ron's Music Center here in Oxford, Mississippi. Let's continue with his story. If you could fill up one hand, five fingers with friends that are really sincere friends, you're very fortunate. That's friends through thick and thin. I can do that. A friend of mine called me that I had not seen in 40 years. My wife says, I think it's a telemarketer. It says on the phone, Dave Love. Took the phone. He said, is this Ronald Lakey? I said, it is. He said, 
were you in the Navy? And I said, hell, Dave, we were in there together. You knew that. You have to ask me. <laughs> and it kind of it kind of blew him away. Maybe he didn't think I would remember him or I don't know what, but he was just trying to make sure he had the right guy. But he and I sat down and talked over the phone for I don't know how long, but everything he asked, you know, everything he said, I could add something to it. And we learned about all of our guys. The next year, we had a reunion in Memphis of that of our division on that ship. But in the meantime, we had located other guys, and we had communicated. I was talking to one of those guys. I said, you know, after we did this, I said, I had so many memories. He said, yeah. And I said, and we were tight. I said, I didn't realize till I met with these guys again how tight we really were in that division. I said, we were, we were tight. He said, yeah, Ron. He said, we were 18, 19, 20 years old. We'd never been anywhere. We never, most of us never been in a big city. And here we are on a, sh we come out of 400 population town. We're on a ship with 900 men on it. And we go to San Diego and uh, and Long Beach and we're in Los Angeles. We were dumped out there and we kind of had to stick together because we were all we had. <laughs> and, and you never, you didn't think about that then, but truthfully, that was what we had. We just had each other. That was what we had. We just had each other. I enjoy coming. I enjoy coming to work every day. I'd like to work less. You know, I'd. I'd rather work about three days a week, but uh, when you're in business and you have employees and you have big bills to pay and that sort of thing, you work. I enjoy that we are mostly Christian-based in Mississippi. I was saved as a young kid, you know, when I was about 11 or 12. When I woke up in the hospital and I didn't have a clue about where I was, and I didn't know that my eyesight was bad. The doctor had a real deep voice and, and he brought me out of my sleep. He said, son, can you hear me? And I said, yes, sir. Thoughts start running through my mind. I couldn't put anything together. And he said, do you know where you are? And I said, God, I hope I'm in a hospital because <laughs> I knew how I'd been living, you know, because I was cutting a pretty wide strip about that time. And uh, he said, you're right, you're in a hospital. And I realized right then that I spiritually was not in good shape if I was not in a hospital and should I die. And when I came to that realization, after I went through the things that I went through in the hospital, but after that, I knew that God was looking out for me and that he had allowed me to live. He's made things happen for me. I've had a lot of prayers answered. I can see them. I've seen them being answered. Many years have come
come and gone Since he walked upon this ground They say lives don't last so long So why's his story hanging round And why do people stop and pray To a man that's dead and gone When I ask them they just say He's coming back to take me home Anybody here wanna live forever Say I do Anybody here wanna walk on golden streets Say I do Is anybody here sick and tired of living like you do? Anybody here want a home with love forever? Say I do. It's just, it's just a little old song that I sang at church sometimes. Immediately that it came out of a liquor store. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. And, uh, wow, listen to that. Can you do that again? <laughs> yeah. It's got a good bell, doesn't it? It's a nice. It is. It's a neat piece. A lot of folks like that. I think it's a 1944. Luis has been with me in the store since he graduated. He came highly recommended, and he's been a blessing to me. And I rely on him heavily. I'm uh, just working on this Ibanez. This one has a, uh, it's got one of these floating fluorose tremolos. So sometimes a little harder to jump. Because if you're, when you tune in, you know, you got a certain amount of tension on the neck, so it it'll, it'll, might pull it up too, too far up which raises your action, this one's actually rattling. So you kind of kind of have to adjust the tension on the springs and just play with it so you get it just right. He started here in May five years ago. So five years and almost five months in, and I like it. It's, it's, it's something that there's always something new coming out with uh, sound systems and you're always learning something, uh, which kind of helps my brain, so. We get guitars that are Nice guitars that customers have that cost a lot of money, and they get breaks or cracks and that sort of thing. I knew everything to do, but Luis can take it to the next level. One because of his pride in his work, but two his his eyesight. He can he can see he can turn out really pretty work on these nice guitars. How y'all doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. She said we've never looked at instruments or anything up close, so she well, look at. You just make yourself at home. If I can help you with anything, just holler at me. Thank you very much. And you've been listening to Ron Lakey, and great job as always to Jesse for capturing Ron's story. And my goodness, I, I can see that scene. He had just wrecked his car, and he hears a voice, "Son, can you hear me?" "Yes, sir." You know where you are. Well, I hope I'm at a hospital. And spiritually, he admitted, I wasn't in good shape. After that, I knew God was looking out for me. 
and he sang that that beautiful song and a, a humble story, a humble guy, and a good guy in a country filled with good guys and gals. Ron Lakey's story here on Our American Stories, the story of a veteran, the story of a man with a disability that, well, doesn't stop him, and the story of a man who loves serving people. When that door opens, you know he just wants to hook them up with the right instrument or whatever else they need. Again, Ron Lakey's story, owner of Ron's Music Center in our little beautiful part of this great country, Oxford, Mississippi. This is Our American Stories. with our American stories and our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever that's following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 40th feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. Lewis and Clark were going downriver on the Missouri and with only a few weeks away from being home. Here's our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. They meet more than 100 people coming upriver, which is a lot. And what that tells us is that Lewis and Clark weren't that important to the opening of the Missouri country, that even if they had never existed, the entrepreneurs and others were going to find reasons to advance up the river. Lewis and Clark weren't the first to go north of St. Louis on the Missouri, and others were going not for the purposes of the Enlightenment, but to trade, to make money, and were fanning out to trade items for peltries amongst the tribes, the Oto, the the Missouri, the Omaha, the Yanktonai Sioux, the Brule Sioux, the Mandan, the Hidatso, the Arikara, etc., And so they find all these people. And, of course, you know, you can imagine that when these expeditions, these trading expeditions are going upriver, that they don't know whether they're going to encounter Lewis and Clark. I I, I imagine they don't expect to. But they know that Lewis and Clark are up there. And so they're not surprised, I'm sure, when they see the flotilla coming around the bend and approaching them. And then when they catch up, of course, this is kind of a great moment because they're a trading expedition. And now they're meeting an official Enlightenment reconnaissance expedition of the United States government authorized by President Thomas Jefferson. This is like, you know, meeting Apollo 11 in the middle of the ocean. And they are excited. And they also get it that this was a heroic enterprise, an epic. And man, have they earned it. This isn't like being on a steamboat or a jet ski. They've earned every single mile of the entire trip. And now they're finally returning home. So it's a pretty cool moment. And I wish we had traders' accounts of meeting Lewis and Clark, that their own journals, because I think that they would say, you know, wow, we today we encountered the famous and presumed lost expedition of Captain Lewis, and uh, although they were a little bit ragged in their appearance, these were tan, 
muscular, seasoned men who were uh, at the top of their game, and it was a kind of a thrill to be able to encounter such an official exploring party. But we don't have any of those eyewitness accounts, if, if any ever existed. All we have are the expedition's journal entries. Here's William Clark. This gentleman was somewhat astonished to see us return and appeared rejoiced to meet us. When Clark says that, that people were sort of gratified and astonished to see them, I think that's probably true. Uh, but I think that the people who were more happy in those encounters were the expedition members because two things come to their mind. One is we must be getting close because we're meeting more and more people. And secondly, we can at least get some of the things that we've been missing all of this time if the traders are willing to give or sell some of what they have. Pressed on us some whiskey for our men, biscuit, pork, and onions. People want to do good things for Lewis and Clark, and they see uh, how desperate the men are for something like, you know, normal habits and procedures. And so then they do press some commodities on them. This is pretty interesting because, you know, the payload problem is always a really significant one. So how do does a trading vessel leave St. Louis for six months, a year, two years? They have to carry everything they're going to need and they're not carrying things for fun necessarily. Their boats are filled with things they expect to trade. This is a money-making enterprise that they're engaged in. And so you can imagine that there would be a kind of structural reluctance to give anybody anything because anything you give away is precious uh, payload. They can't be hauling U-Hauls. So they, everything they, they're going to have has to be in those boats. And if, if you give anything away, you have made yourself less profitable. So that is a pretty startling development. It, it makes more sense when Lewis and Clark buy things, like buy whiskey or, or buy other things from traders. But even then, the traders, you know, they're heading to South Dakota. And so if you start trading away any significant percentage of what you have that far down the river... You, at some point, you may as well just turn back. And a lot of traders were generous with free gifts, but they still had to buy some things. They start to obtain things that they've missed, so what they want is tobacco, and they get it. He very readily agreed to furnish us with tobacco. And they want whiskey, and they get that and pay a large amount for it. We purchased two gallons of whiskey for our party, for which we were obliged to give eight dollars in cash. And the men get shirts if they can, and they buy a little bit of flour and some other commodities. You know, they're rushing home, but they haven't had milled flour for two years, and they've been out of alcohol since July 4th, 1805. And they've been wearing skin shirts. In fact, when they got to the area around Fort Mandem, Lewis and Clark say the men were essentially naked, that their clothes had rotted away and it was summer. And so they were wearing less and less and the men were in a semi-naked condition. So this is a really interesting part of the expedition for me because 
it tells you a lot about reentry. You know, you've been gone all this time, and so what are the things they most want? Well, they don't choose flour first; they choose tobacco and whiskey first. And then it's really fascinating to think that shirts, you know, the cloth shirts, would have been that important to them. As soon as they get to St. Louis, they all go and get new clothes. Not just the captains, but the enlisted men. But that's still a few weeks away. And then they see their first cows, and they cheer because this is a sure sign of that they're approaching civilization. A joyful sight to the party, and caused a shout to be raised for joy. So when they finally do land on September 23, 1806, they have, in a sense, already re-entered. Some parts of frontier civilization, and when they do land, there's an observer, a, a traveler who was in St. Louis at the time, and he's our only actual eyewitness account of what happened. And he says that they looked like refugees from Robinson Crusoe. So you get a sense of long, matted hair,、uh, beards, this shabby, deteriorating clothing that they have. Basically, just been reduced to the status of almost homelessness, mountain men, by the length of the journey. And so, of course, what everyone now wants to do is get a proper bath,、um, make contact with their home country back in Kentucky or Pennsylvania,、um, tell stories in bars, get paid. They all, I suppose, find women, but they're all looking for. A return to some sign of normalcy, just as as quickly as possible. And so, this is a part of the expedition that gets way too little attention, and it deserves a book. You know, I, I would, if I were writing the book, I would call it reentry. This whole process of moving back towards and reentering civilization, if you can call St. Louis civilization, and discharging the men, paying them off, and the sort of、uh, the diaspora. You know, most of the men. Drifted back to Kentucky or Pennsylvania or wherever they were from. Today they would all have book contracts and reality television shows and would be celebrities.、And、they probably were celebrities to a point in St. Louis. They went to the taverns and told wild stories, and probably lots of people gathered around them. And each member of the expedition made as much of that as he could. And we know for a fact that York, Clark's black slave. Began to talk about his expedition, and that Clark found this somewhat annoying. Clark thought that York was sort of dining out on the story and making more of his own role in the expedition than was proper. But we do know that that this is something that was that was going on. So that that part of the expedition is is not very well known and not adequately explored. But I think it would be one of the most fascinating things to get. You know, there are 33 members of the permanent party to get 25 or so different stories about how the expedition unfolded. If if we had had the chance to debrief each person with an oral history, we would essentially know infinitely more about the expedition than we now do. And you've been listening to Clay Jenkinson, and by the way, he's the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical. We proceeded on, and you can learn more about Clay and his work at clayjenkinson.com. He's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And yes, Jefferson deserves it. 
and great work as always to Alex. 40 of these, folks. You can go back and just listen to them all. They're a delight. And Clay Jenkinson is right. Re-entry would be a terrific book. They just didn't choose flour first, he said. They chose tobacco and whiskey. And they just wanted to return to normalcy. Maybe just get a good bath, find a woman, tell stories at bars, and just re-enter their old life. What a great story. The most epic road trip ever. The story of Lewis and Clark. Here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, and we love to hear your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll put them up on the air. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now we bring you the incredible life story of Kelly Loth, a Colorado woman who left her job as a biochemical engineer to try to find greater meaning as a teacher. Kelly would find meeting and has had extraordinary impact. But as is often the case, many great things begin with a tragedy. We had just had our first child. When I got the call, I was not at home. I was actually at school at parent-teacher conferences running them. I was a teacher then. And I actually thought that it was my son, that something had happened, you know, that he was really sick or something had happened. I didn't even think that it could be my husband. He had a massive stroke. When I got to the hospital and realized what was going on, I knew that my life would never be the same. And, and it wasn't. He was actually uh, pronounced dead twice. <laughs> kind of fought through it a little bit that first night. I walked into the hospital and I'm 24 years old and I don't know what's going on and I'm asked to make a decision to give him the medicine that helps kind of recover brain activity and and lessen some of the swelling in the brain and it would either help him or it would instantly kill him. And at that point I had no no family around, just had literally been dropped off at the hospital and from that decision forward everything was different. So he spent two weeks in the ICU and then another several weeks in the hospital and had to be transitioned to a facility to learn to walk and talk again and become a a human being again, to be honest, brush his teeth, the whole thing. And it was very traumatic to his brain. He kind of topped out maturity-wise about an 18-year-old, and here's a man who helped design QuickBooks. I mean, like, a genius. It was all around heartbreaking. There were several times he would tell me he wished he had died, that he hadn't survived. Over the course of several months we just tried to figure out how to go forward with a brand new baby being a very young brand new teacher and then having this happen i missed seeing trey's first steps because my parents had taken him to live with them so that i could be with um, my husband full-time and help him recover and it was just a lot it was a lot of being a 24 year old i look back on it now and i think thank god i was and that sort of had this like weird ignorance about me of like work through it get through it just take each day I used to walk out of the hospital and go stand by the highway on Highway 36 and just watch traffic and just wish that I was in a car going to like a really boring normal job, like that that was my day and that I wasn't there at the hospital trying to figure out how to re-navigate my whole life. 
He came home and wasn't only, not only the same person, but didn't like the same food, didn't dress the same. I think didn't even really want to be with me. Certainly didn't want to have a child. We started to see that I'm not sure where we go from here. My husband and I talked through it and it was actually mutually agreed upon to not stay together so that he could concentrate on becoming better and really get the rehab that he needed in a way that wasn't distracting and that I could move on with my life and with our son. And so I guess I'm proud to say that we're good friends. He sees our son as he can and as he wants to and cheers him on at his games. We all are together, we go do things together, so it's kind of one big, happy, dysfunctional family. <laughs> you always search for why, like why do these things happen? Like, and I know there's a medical reason. I mean, I'm an engineer, I'm a scientist. I fully understood when the doctors were telling me what was happening. But I think for me, there's always just been this bigger sense of why did this happen and what was the journey that this led us to. And so it's always made me have a greater sense of like, do something impactful, make a difference, because you just never know. Like, our lives were great. I mean, I would say they're perfect, but it definitely creates a, a sense of there's got to be something that you do that's important. And Kelly went on to impact education in important ways, all starting with her first job as a teacher in a Denver suburb of Adams County. It was mid-year, and so when you get a job teaching mid-year in a district, they go around and piece together a class for you, and you can imagine being the other teachers, you don't give up your best and brightest students. So I took on a class of about 22 students who had all been sort of dumped into my classroom. Most could not read. It was a first, second grade combination class, and my classroom was physically on the stage, so it wasn't in an actual classroom. And I had no idea what I was doing. Here I come out of the engineering world, I'm looking at them all like, what do you mean you can't read? Like, come on, let's go. And so we did eventually teach them to read and do some amazing math, but everything I did and taught them was through the lens of science. Went around the school asking for like, do you guys have any cool science equipment? Finally, one teacher said to me, oh, I think there's a closet full of some junk that we stuffed in the back. You're welcome to go at it. And I went in there and there was just all these amazing kits and junk literally in there. And so I pulled it all out and I looked at what I was supposed to be teaching to first and second graders. And I just started building units around it. And then we did all of our reading, writing, and math through that lens. I don't think it was a super popular idea. At the time, it was a kind of a model then of follow the curriculum, do what you're told, read out the book, don't steer away from that really. I did have to tell you a funny story. So the first week I was there, I sat in the teacher's lounge, right, which is like the sacred ground. And I sat down at a table in just a very much a very ugly folding chair. It was a really disgusting lounge. And two women walked in and said, you're, you're in our seats. And I thought, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize there was like seating in the lounge. And they said, yeah, this is where we sit every day and have lunch. And so I, I got up and I moved and I apologized. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? It was just so interesting. I had teacher after teacher stop by. One day, our kids put on a play. My kids put on a play to explain a science phenomenon that we were working on. We were talking about matter, the very first and second grade level. So I was like, let's write a play for it. And you guys put on a play, we'll invite your parents in. And I had people coming over like, we don't do that. I don't know what you're doing. What, you know, you're, you're wasting time. I think they didn't want to be forced to do what I was doing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't, they didn't want someone else to see this engagement and say, oh, why, why are we not doing some of this? Like, you all do this, you know, because it's it required a lot of effort and something different. And I think they were a little fearful of me, to be honest, and didn't know what to do. And to be honest, I didn't care. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, I didn't want to lose my job, but at the same time, I thought, you aren't showing me a different way that's getting you better results. So I have kids engaged. I have kids who can't come to school. 
for lots of reasons, coming to school because what we're doing is important to them. And for me, that was a win at the time. And you're listening to Kelly Loth, the CEO of MindSpark Learning, founder of the first K-8 STEM school in the country. And when we continue, more of Kelly Loth's remarkable story. This is Our American Stories. American Stories, and we're back with the story of Kelly Loth, the Colorado engineer who changed careers to become a teacher. New to the profession, Kelly created some innovative teaching methods that were unwelcomed by her co-workers, but showed great success. Let's get back to Joey with the rest of the story. After feeling like the black sheep, digging through the school closets for science kits, and creating plays about science... Kelly went on to become the science coordinator in her school district. We started to see that science like wasn't important. It was all focused on math and literacy. You know, teachers weren't engaged, students weren't engaged. And so Kelly thought, what if we created a school where students could actually be engaged? Where the classroom could look like the real world? Where businesses could share with students their actual problems that they themselves haven't even figured out yet? a school where students go on problem-solving adventures to learn pretty much everything, like literacy and STEM, subjects of science, technology, engineering, and math. A school where students are given the tools to create their own futures through a philosophy of teaching called problem-based learning. We started asking schools that were identifying with STEM at the time because it just become like that new thing that was getting a lot of traction at the federal level. If we were to build a STEM school, how would you tell us to do that? And they were saying, you have to start young. They said, we want to be relevant to workforce, but we're remeeting so much at this level, there's no pipeline for us. Like kids are coming to us not ready to do all the things that we want them to do. And we were like, awesome. So we went back and we built out an entire school model of a K-8 STEM school and how we would start teaching career literacy and this identity of work very, very early at five years old. We had a superintendent at the time that we pitched the idea to, and he said, absolutely not. We don't have schools of choice around here. Don't need them, not interested, don't have the resources, like not have any. I mean, it was completely shut down. Perfect storm happened. A new superintendent came in. I think he was literally on the job two weeks, and we literally pounced on him and said, we have this idea. Just want to run it by you. Like, we were shut down before, not sure if you're going to like it. At that time, too, was also the perfect storm where a ton of charter schools were trying to move into the district, and it's not a, a charter friendly district at the time. And so his philosophy was competition, while it's healthy, we shouldn't have, need the charter schools. We should be able to serve our kids as well. And if we're not, then why are we not doing that? And so he said, I like it. I like the idea that it's our kids, we're serving our kids well, and we're giving some choice, and we're giving some competition to the market, but we're doing it ourselves. It was in a time when the district was cutting $22 million out of the budget, and he found the courage and took the risk to say yes to us. So we got put in the crappiest building in the district. It was actually condemned. Kind of cobbled a budget together from a whole bunch of different pots of money in the district and said, basically, you've got three months to open the doors, be successful, or we'll close you down, but good luck. <laughs> and so the three of us took it on head on. 
We set out a brain trust invite for industry to come to the table so that we could build a model relevant to them and really get their ideas and see what they were working on that was authentic that we could bring into the classroom. And we put out a call for about 400, 500 people and five people showed up. And we asked them for all these brilliant ideas about what problems are you working on? If you were to intersect with education, what would you want that to look like? And it was brilliant. I mean, it truly was brilliant. And they, they really did build the model out for us and with us. And at the end of that time, they were like, great, when can we get our hands on these kids? Because they're just going to be amazing, right? Like we want this talent pipeline. And I said, they're gonna, we're going to start with five-year-olds. They said, you want to start with five-year-olds? And I, we said, yes, we're, we're going to start with five-year-olds. And they were just sort of, I think, appalled. But they didn't leave us. And still, so now it's 10 years later, the schools that we've built this model in are thriving. And we have over 460 industry partnerships that work in the school every day. And they don't give up their money, they give up their time and resource and expertise, and they, they build out the model. A model for the very first K-8 STEM school in America. Our first school was wildly successful. We opened the door with 250 kids. By the end of that year, we had 483 families on a wait list to get in, and we had closed the reading gap for our Hispanic males by mid-year. So we kind of got excited and thought maybe there's something kind of to this madness that we were creating and working on. Students wrestle over these problems in collaborative teams as young as five, and then they present their viable solutions and ideas to a panel of industry experts who've kind of worked along the way with them and end up going in two different directions usually, which is if it's a viable product or service, the students launch their own companies, and then or they do something significant in the community. So we've had several students start nonprofits. One of the first years, we um, had some second graders who were working on the problem around the pine beetle kill going on in Colorado. Several years ago, um, we had an infestation of, of beetles that were actually traveling tree to tree in our pine forest and just killing them. So, and in wiping out literally massive acres of trees. And some scientists think it's part of kind of a natural cycle that happens and others, it's definitely devastating and leading to a lot of the wildfires then because you have all this dead wood. So it's part of a whole bigger kind of ecological problem. But we had a group of second graders who'd come up with these really simple but pretty brilliant ideas around how to combat the pine beetle from spreading and actually had some really cool and powerful ideas about killing off the larvae before it was able to even become a full adult pine beetle and spread. And it was very simple. I mean, it was like something you'd know that a second grader would develop. And we as educators and working with these students, you know, we didn't know much about it. We just knew what the experts had said. And so I remember telling the students like, yeah, I think, I think you should definitely pitch this idea. And I remember the teacher and I had been talking like, wow, that's such a simple idea. Hopefully the industry experts will like it. Like, not sure it's well developed. And the kids pitched and it was kind of two groups that had very similar ideas. And actually the companies came back, the industry panel came back four times to talk with students about this idea and became apparent very soon that they wanted their idea. They were gonna market it, that they actually thought there was some merit to it. And so we quickly developed a process for some of the companies we worked with to sign NDAs so that they, and to sign some IP rights so that they wouldn't go around stealing student ideas, but actually mentor and help students to develop their ideas. And students got patents out of that project. You're in second grade and you have a brilliant idea and have a patent. So the companies actually ran with their idea, but the students uh, actually kind of quote unquote sold it to them. So, <laughs> I mean, just crazy, right? It's just so cool. And these aren't her only students with real business stuff going on. Now we're up to six student-run LLCs, fully registered, youngest in second grade. And then we have about 16 student patents pending in our pipeline. 
It's always funny, everyone always says, well, what do you do to get prepared for all the state testing and all the high stakes testing? And I say, we don't do anything. We don't celebrate the tests. We don't have pajama day for the test. We don't dye our hair, wear crazy socks. It's another day and actually most of my STEM students are so relieved to just be like not presenting and not doing something major that day. They're like, it's testing day. Yeah, you know, and they'll actually tell you, it's kind of boring, take a test. But it's not a big deal to them and they don't have test anxiety because they're doing this every day. They're working on all these things that matter to them in their community and so they're applying all these skills at such a high rate in such an authentic way. They're vetting multiple texts. They're having to find the important information out of that text. They're doing these skills all the time this is just a different housing mechanism. They also every day get up and say to a group of adults, I want you to care about the idea that I have. And they have to look you in the eye, they have to shake your hand, they have to express themselves. And so to sit in front of a computer screen and take a test does not seem like a big deal to them anymore. And Kelly's work wasn't over. She was asked to bring her STEM problem-based learning model to a struggling high school in her district. So they've gone from a 69% grad rate to hovering around 90% grad rate. And the really amazing thing is their underrepresented populations, their um, Hispanic students and their African-American students are out graduating their white counterpart students. Which is practically unheard of in America. I think what's happening is that it's no longer just about surviving high school and not feeling connected to your school. The students are very empowered there. And so what we've seen is students who come from pretty impacted families and are very at risk thrive because school has a purpose to that, right? It's a means to a family sustaining wage. And they know that they're just not sitting through a class because they have to sit through a class, but they know that they have to come and they're working side by side with somebody from industry. They have to show up for that mentorship. It's gonna translate into this job or it's gonna translate into a two-year degree or eventually onto college if they wish. Like, there's just such a powerful meaning there that we've seen attendance rates go up. And we've seen discipline rates go down. And they went from, you know, having nobody wanting to be in the school to a wait list. Like, kids have internships and jobs. It's just completely changed the community. And great job to Joey and we're telling Kelly Loth's story, a remarkable story. And I love that line, school has a purpose. What a crazy idea. Because, well, when what we're studying is tied to our purpose, well, then math, the sciences, it all becomes interesting. Well, because there's a connection between what they're studying and what they want to do with their lives. It's an applied learning situation. You know, my dad spent a lifetime in public education trying to get this done. It was great frustration. He couldn't. He was a superintendent of schools. But very strong teachers' unions didn't really care for innovation in the state of New Jersey. And Kelly has launched two more STEM schools in her district and has 13 sister schools across the country. Kelly now runs a nonprofit called MindSpark Learning, which helps bring these same transformative experiences into struggling schools across the country. And if your school needs help, you can reach out to Kelly at mymindsparklearning.org. That's mymindsparklearning.org. Kelly Loth's story, and a great innovation and education story, here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we talk about everything here on this show, art, sports, history, and your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. While you're there, sign up for our free and terrific newsletter. You give us your email, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Our five best stories each week, direct to your inbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we love talking to authors, and today we have a longtime journalist, Amy Sutherland. She's done all kinds of writing. She's worked in newspaper industry, and in the early 2000s, she started writing books and working on magazine pieces. The book she'll be talking about today is entitled, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. Here's Amy. People are always trying to change each other's behavior. The only thing I started to do differently was I started trying to change my husband's behavior by changing my behavior first. I started using my own behavior as communication. And that's the biggest lesson, I think, maybe, or one of the biggest lessons I got from the world of animal training is that your how you behave is communication. Amy Sutherland has found a unique way to interact with others. Many of us are trying to change those around us, which will leave us frustrated. What would happen if we just focused on changing our own behavior? Like in the 90s, late 90s, my husband and I adopted, uh, brought home a dog, our first dog as adults, a little puppy, an Australian shepherd we named Dixie Lou. And uh, she was a herding dog and she was a ball of fire. So my husband and I took her to a trainer and we had our sights set on teaching Dixie how to run agility courses. But to do that, we had to first take her to a, basically a, a, like a puppy obedience class. It was just my good luck that this trainer trained with all positive reinforcement, what in, uh, is called often clicker training. But uh, the, the thrust of clicker training is that training is fun and it's done with positive reinforcement, that there's no punishment as in there's the no uh, leaking, uh, jerking the leash, you know, barking orders at the dog. It's a much more civil and humane and intellectually challenging experience. That's basically how I first learned about animal training and not only how interesting it was as something to learn for myself as a human, but that it was a really interesting intellectual challenge to have that amount of self-control to learn how to work with another species and the payoff was humongous and that was getting to communicate with another species uh, in this case my gorgeous little dog Dixie Lou so I was super hooked on animal training and I had a friend who was an editor of a magazine and she knew this she knew that i loved animal training and loved animals and uh she also knew that uh i had spent a lot of time in france and that i had workable french and so she gave me this great assignment to go to the set of 102 dalmatians and do a story on the production there the, the thing with a movie set is it sounds like like a super sexy story assignment but the fact is, what happens on movie sets is that you stand around a lot. So there was a lot of time to 
kill. Uh, but it was just my good luck that given it was 102 Dalmatians that there were all these dogs on the set and with their trainers. But anyhow, it turned out they had all gone to the school I had never heard of and it was Moore Park Community College's Exotic Animal Training Management Program which has the appropriate acronym of EDEM. Um, and this was really the Harvard University, is the Harvard University for animal trainers in this country, and it has a reputation internationally, too. Um, so if you want to get somewhere in this field, you ideally want to go to this school. So this, like, st actually, it struck me as almost something made up. But, uh, you know, once you get into the world of animals, it seems like anything's possible. So uh, a few years later, when I was looking for a book idea um, for my second book, uh, I remembered this school and um, thought that that had the potential for a book. And uh, I was completely right. It had more than enough material for a book. And I spent about a year and a half following these students. I was following them as they learned how to work with everything from emus to wolves to boa constrictors to tigers to uh, they had a trained hyena. They had loads and loads of parrots. And they used the same progressive training methods using positive reinforcement to work with these animals and to get them to do all kinds of amazing behaviors. But it also became a, more of a life-changing experience for me than I expected because to learn how to work with these animals they had to learn sort of almost a philosophy. They had to learn a different way of thinking and um, that way of thinking really started to get under my skin. I started to realize that the way that they were working with these animals and the ideas they were using and techniques that they were using, that if they could work with these exotic animals, that it might make sense to start using some of these ideas to improve my own personal relationships and the, the relationship I thought I would try some of these ideas with was with my marriage, <laughs> with my husband, the, with the homo sapien known as Scott Sutherland. One of the first times I did this, which I've, I've, I ended up writing about for the New York Times, was uh, my husband is a perpetual key loser. And this is a behavior that sort of charged in our house, meaning he would be looking for his keys, he'd be stomping around, and it was really hard for me to ignore the stomping. And so I would somehow always get involved with him looking for his keys. And sometimes I would help him actually look, or sometimes I'd make suggestions of how he could avoid this in the future. That never went over very well. But it would just end up turning into this drama. One of the lessons they teach the students when they work with the uh, exotic animals is that you should basically ignore behavior that you don't want. Meaning, 
When you pay attention to behavior you don't want, you are in some way potentially reinforcing that behavior. Say, for example, a dolphin trainer asks a dolphin to do a, you know, some kind of cue like flip or whatever, but the dolphin doesn't do it or the dolphin instead decides to spit water on that trainer, the trainer will studiously ignore that behavior because if they respond in any way, that dolphin might think that that was pretty much fun and squirt water on them again. So I use that same sort of thinking the next time my husband lost his keys, I tried what a dolphin trainer would do, and when I heard the stomping and the harumping, I just ignored him, and I did not get involved. And the next thing I knew, my husband had found his keys, and, you know, no drama, and I had actually felt kind of like I had wasted years and years of my life helping him find the keys in the past. So I ended up writing about this sort of new approach to my marriage with the help of animal training. For the New York Times, for their modern love section, I got an overwhelming response that I didn't expect. Within a week, I was signed up to go on to the Today Show. I had a movie deal that was in the works, and I had a book deal that was in the works. So it turns out that people <laughs> really need help with their some of their marriages and that I had found something that might do the trick for a lot of people. That is how I ended up writing my third book, which is what is called What Yamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. It's sort of the story about how I changed my thinking about how to deal with the human relationships in my life based on what I had learned from the school for exotic animal trainers. And when we come back, we continue with Amy Sutherland, her book, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. More importantly, her story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we've been listening to author Amy Sutherland, the writer of the book, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. And she's been telling us the story about her visits to the Exotic Animal Training and Management Program in Moore Park, California. She wrote a column about her experiences there and how she began to use the technique on her husband. By the way, I love that she called him Homo sapien, Scott Sutherland, and Homo sapien Lee Habib need similar training. I don't just lose keys. I lose everything. Let's return to her story. After I wrote that column, some pe- I got actually mostly positive responses to that. But, you know, some people were sort of bothered by it, and they it didn't surprise me. Uh, one of the things is they said is that, you know, why can't you just tell your husband um, what you want him to do? You know, like, as if I hadn't tried that for most of my marriage. I mean, that's what we're all doing all the time, right? We are, you know, uh, we're all trying to change each other's behaviors, but we tend to do it verbally. And we tend to do it often negatively, like with uh, criticizing or nagging or going on and on and about how we feel about something. 
it becomes very clear when you work with animals because you don't have that verbal component. All you have is your behavior. So you don't get to go back to an animal and say, oh geez, what I really meant was blah itty blah itty blah. Or, you know, hey emu, I really don't like it when you, you know, try to whack me with your head. That I saw the power of that with all these amazing things these trainers trained. So what a lot of people were missing is that yeah, I was trying to change my husband's behavior, but I changed myself first. And the, the, the sort of end bonus for that, which I didn't think about at the time, turned out to be that in doing this, it made me a calmer person. It made me um, a more self, I had more self-control. I got better at not taking things personally. It had this sort of transformative effect on my own personality. And since then, I would say that uh, it had the effect on my marriage of, one, I quit nagging, because one of the rules of animal behavior is that if you're using a technique and it's not working, it's not having any success, then you should stop doing that. I mean, that seems so obvious, but how many of us just keep repeating ourselves and nagging? I mean, I certainly did. So I stopped doing that, uh, and that was a relief to my husband, I'm sure. It certainly actually was a relief to me, I found, too, to not hear myself saying the same old thing again. What is the benefit of reward versus punishment? But the truth is, what most people don't know, is that all these ideas that inform modern animal training came from the world of human psychology. They came from the world of B.F. Skinner and um, behavior science. What he found is a living organism learns the most effectively when they are rewarded as opposed to being punished. This was, uh, you know, he studied this, he trained pigeons, but he basically was, you know, rooted in a scholarly, academic, psychological, human psychological world. To really be an effective trainer, you have to look in the mirror and sort of understand what it is that you're doing uh, that might be reinforcing uh, other people's behaviors. You know, how could it how could it start with you? You know, there's there's times it's not, but you have to always think about that and think about, you know, what you could be doing differently. The other thing that I had uh, I thought a lot about is um, uh, is in in the training world they have a saying that's called know your species. And uh, what that means is that you understand the species of animal that you are working with, meaning is it does it does it like to sleep at night? Does it like to sleep during the day? Does it uh, does it like cold weather? Does it like hot weather? I thought about that with the people in my life. Like what were the behaviors about them? that were dialed in, that were just like too much a part of their wiring, ones that I really am, was, were never going to change or had to think about what was reasonable to expect. Like um, my husband, you know, I had not really expected to try to get my husband to quit losing his keys. That was, you know, he, he tends to be a kind of thinky person and he's often sort of, you know, not you know thinking of other things while he's doing you know the normal things like 
putting his keys down somewhere so he's not keeping track of them. Um, I, instead of putting my sights on that behavior, I set my sights on changing what happened when we looked for his keys. Our lives would be much less frustrating if we didn't take things so personally. This does not mean we don't have feelings, but instead we see outside of ourselves and practice empathy. Because people have some of these behaviors really wired in, and also, in addition to that, you might take how somebody is responding to you personally when in fact it's got to do with something other than you. So I learned to take things less personally. So, for example, uh, in the train, in the animal training world, uh, trainers, one of the big rules is that you do not take anything personally. You do not say they really discourage the students from talking about the animals liking them or not liking them, because um, that's just too uh, anthropomorphic of a view. That is when we attribute human characteristics to non-human entities. They wanted them to always have a neutral sort of idea of what the animal was doing and not make it some uh, highly charged or emotional reason for why an animal was doing something. Because when you think that way, you might have trouble seeing why an animal is doing something. So I started thinking about that with people and thinking about when was the when were the times that I was taking what somebody did personally when in fact it had nothing to do with me. How has Amy's life changed in light of all this? I mean, I think one of the strongest things I learned is when is to know when to not respond. I've gotten so much better at that and to just you know, when I, it's the idea that, you know, that one of the things the trainers say is you get what you reinforce, right? That's like a universal rule. And uh, I think that's one of the most brilliant, boiled down uh, sort of approaches to life I've ever heard. So if you get what you reinforce, then by, you know, you start to think about, you get much better about not reinforcing and knowing when to either not say anything to leave the room, to disengage somehow. But she doesn't just practice these ideas on others. I mean, the thing is, is that I use a lot of this stuff on myself to understand like when I can think through something and when I can't, when I should be doing online checking and when I shouldn't be. Because you got to be real with yourself about when you're clear in the head and what you can expect out of yourself. A lot of people are uncomfortable with the word training because it feels or sounds manipulative. But maybe it's not what we think. That brings up sort of like an issue that a lot of people have with training. A lot of people have a negative connection to that word. Oddly, because we have weight training and people train for sports and... There's a lot of positive ways it's used with people, but a lot of people associate the word training with dog training. And dog training traditionally, unfortunately, was very negative-based with a lot of punishment. That has changed, thank God. But I think that when you use that word, people often get their hackles up. Fact is, for me, is I think of the word as training, I equate it with teaching. I also equate it with communication. I think the world is slightly changing about that. I think 
there's a, a movement in this country, I actually spoke at a conference this summer, and it was a conference called Convergence, and the convergence was that half the room was animal trainers, and half the room were people who are already using these ideas with people. So uh, there's a form of clicker training that's called tag teaching, and it's basically being, it's, it's using the clicker with humans, um, and it's use, they're using it the same kind of like bare bones technology to teach uh, people how to work on assembly lines, to help people improve their golf swings, to help surgeons learn how to tie uh, surgical residents, how to tie uh, surgical knots properly. They find that the same system of using a, a sound to mark when somebody gets something right works with humans just as it does with animals. So I think someday I won't seem like such a weirdo. <laughs> it's my hope. <laughs> when you begin seeing outside yourself, you start to see animals and people as individuals. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And that was Amy Sutherland. And again, her book, What Shamu, taught me about love, life, and marriage. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear and see all that we do. And send us your stories, your relationship stories, your lost stories, your love stories, any old story. Send them into ouramericannetwork.org. We'll do our best to turn them around and put them up on the airwaves for you, for all of you. Again, Amy Sutherland, her story, her book, here on Our American Stories.